Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Velhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Ve sallallahu ala seyyidil mürselin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem ecmain. Greetings of peace to you and yours, wherever you may be in the cosmos. This is Baraka Blue and you are tuned in to Path and Present Podcast. This podcast episode is with Dr. Abdullah Rothman. Dr. Abdullah is a specialist in Islamic psychology, Sufi psychology, Islamic models of the soul, understanding the self and its uh, cures and its diseases and how to attain the um, potential of the human state. And uh, he's someone who I've had the opportunity to spend some time with uh, both in the States as well as in Abu Dhabi, where he is currently employed at uh, NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, we did some programs there together. And uh, alhamdulillah, it's been an honor uh, to to make his acquaintance. Uh, we also spent time together in Istanbul, I almost forgot. So alhamdulillah, he's a, a really good brother and he's doing great work, very insightful. He's really at the cutting edge, someone who is deeply steeped in the Islamic tradition, particularly Tasawwuf or Sufism, but he's also uh, someone who is trained academically uh, in psychology and in counseling and therapy. So I think this is a very fruitful and important field of inquiry, and he's someone who is uh, really uh, a leader in that field. He's also... Uh, studied under Dr. Malik Badri, who is a previous guest and who is, you know, in many, in many senses, uh, one of the great pioneers of this field. So, alhamdulillah, uh, I'm very happy to have Dr. Abdullah as a guest, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Before I give it to you, though, I wanted to thank everyone for supporting the podcast, for listening, for sharing, for making dua, and for supporting uh, I just wanted to thank uh, some of our um, Patreon supporters who are making this all possible. Um, you know who you are. Uh, I don't want to go through everybody's names, but uh, we're very grateful for all of the people that support, and we have some very generous patrons who make this possible. So if you can, make a special dua prayer for everyone who is supporting this. As you know, uh, this is ad-free podcast, so it's really made possible by your support. Uh, if you have the ability to support through Patreon, um, you can go to our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash path and present, and you can support with as little as a dollar a month, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month, ten thousand dollars a month, or whatever in between. And uh, we're very grateful for that because that supports the production of this podcast and allows us to bring it to your ears. All right, y'all. One love. So, alhamdulillah, you just showed me the diagram of the, the soul. 
<laughs> physical <laughs> diagram of the soul. So in that paper, what is the, the main thesis or what is the main question you're asking or trying to answer? Um, at a really fundamental level, what is the um, foundation from an Islamic paradigm of how we understand the psychology of the human being? So, and that comes down to like the structure of the soul because from an Islamic perspective, the human being at the core is a soul in a body. Mm. And so it's about understanding the, the, uh, the aspects of what makes up the soul and how it interacts with what we have come to understand as like the mind and the psyche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially, I mean, the most fundamental question in the sense, like, what is the human being? Right. Um, <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and it's interesting because, yeah, this is a profound question, and it gets to the heart of everything. And when we talk about psychology in a Western sense, I mean, psychology literally from psyche, the Greek, or soul, study of the soul. But of course, the concept of soul for modern kind of materialist science is untenable. Yeah. Uh, or at least, you know, yeah, because it's immeasurable in a certain sense, or we're not able to detect it with our instruments. And although there's a lot of debate, I'm kind of, I'm really interested in this, this conversation of like philosophy of mind and consciousness. It's a really interesting field. Yeah. Especially because they realize, scientists realize that this is really an, like, okay, we can like map the stars and go to the moon and Mars soon and all these neurons and quarks and uh, right, get to the, the this subatomic particles and all these things. But yet we don't really at all understand what this tool that we're using to understand all of that is. Yeah. Like, it is all observed through the mind or through the witness of the, the human consciousness. But what that is exactly or how that arises um, is they're, they're not able to pin it down, so yeah. to speak. And, you know, is it just purely generated by the brains, neurons and quarks firing or is it you know, is the brain a receiver for consciousness, right? These type of things. Um, but anyway, to, to step back and to get into this. So would you say that it's, uh, like how would you explain to someone who's unfamiliar with an Islamic concept of the human soul or the human being, what is a human being? How would you explain that? I mean, even just going back to what you're saying about how people are, um, it's such a mystery. People are trying to figure out everything else in the world and down to these levels of atom- atoms and um, and yet we don't understand our fundamental nature. I think it, at the heart of that is um, our essential predicament as human beings mm-hmm. is that we're in perceived um, separation from the source of creation. And so we, we, 
are in these individual units in our being. And so we start to, our, our whole perception of our experience becomes fragmented. Um, everything is seen in terms of like, I'm here, you're there, um, this duality or this binary. And so our, our whole exploration <clears throat> of the world is about, you know, us experiencing the other. Mm-hmm. and us analyzing the other and making sense of the other or the thing that's outside from us. And so I think from an Islamic paradigm, um, which is very much a spiritual reality, is seeing that our, our existence here in this world is positioned and po- posited in order for us to um, see the, the unity in all of that duality and separation. And so in, in terms of like understanding what the human being is, underlying that is understanding that, that the human being is, there's a, is, is, um, comes from that oneness and still has access to that oneness. And so health and wholeness is about this um, being integral, you know, this integration of of this all these parts mm-hmm. to access this consciousness of tawhid which is oneness mm-hmm. yeah and so yeah because there's a lot of talk about duality non non-duality and right that yeah we're all essentially from the one and at the center of our being is oneness yeah but yet at the same time we're clearly composite beings right and across time and space there's really interesting ways but also very similar ways of articulating this so the buddha said that there's an elephant and a rider within each one of us so the the elephant is like that kind of untamed wild almost Mm. like bestial nature and the rider is of course like more like the the mind consciousness Mm. the will intention and the goal, of course, of the, this, the of meditation and of the disciplines that he taught was to tame the elephant. Because you can't, a rider can't physically overpower the elephant, but it can, through discipline, through consistency, wow. through work, tame that. And Plato and the Greek philosophers has a very similar, you know, analogy. Plato said that... Just a different animal. Exactly. <laughs> horse. Within us is a charioteer and a rider. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, riding the horse. And... The exact same concept. And you also find it in our tradition. I'm sure you could mention other places, but, uh, you know, Maldana Rumi talks about uh, that in each person is a Jesus, the Ruh, riding the donkey, mm-hmm. the Nafs al that lower self. And so, again, it's this concept that there's, a, there's this higher self, this yeah. profound reality to the human being. and it, But it's kind of in potentia because... If we don't discipline this other aspect of ourself, it can overshadow us, right? Yeah. And so uh, maybe we can like introduce some of the terms. And you know, from what I know, you, you know, reading through Imam Ghazali and other Sufi writers, particularly, you know, there's terms that are talked about. There's the qalb, which is the heart, the ruh which is usually translated as the spirit. There's the 
uh, aql, which is usually translated as the intellect or the mind. And then there's the uh, nafs, which is usually translated as the self or the soul or the ego. That <laughs> one there's a lot of discussion about. Um, but literally in Arabic means self. Yeah. So, um, yeah, how do... How would you kind of make sense of this? I mean, is it right to say that the human being is a composite, that we have these conflicting almost or competing natures within us? Yeah, I think so. Um, and certainly from the, from the writings of the scholars, which is taking from the Islamic tradition, and primarily the Quran, um, these, these terms are used to understand these composite parts of the soul. But those but again, it comes back to the, the reason that those parts are there and that there is a composite is because of our existence in this life, mm. in the dunya. Mm. Right? So when we come into this world, um, f- from pre, pre, in pre-existence, we are um, part of that oneness and we mm. witness the oneness of, mm. of God. And so then when we come into this world... That's when this, um, you know, separation happens, and so things are fragmented, and so then we, it's understanding our self in this world is where it becomes these composite parts, and so that's why the you have the the ruh is the the that original um, uh, aspect that is connected to God from mm-hmm. from the beginning. The thing that was breathed into the human being and that has access to this pure part. This, this, also, this exists within the human being, but then now in this body, um, there is the, the, the nafs. And so like you said, the word nafs is the self um, or the soul. But then that can be understood as in this, in this worldly experience, that is the experience of that individual self. Mm. But then you, um, within that individual self, there's still access to this higher um, aspect of the ruh. Right. And so the kalb is this intermediary point in mm-hmm. between those two um, potentialities of right. the human soul that regulates or determines whether the, the person is in line with their... that. Um, pure self that is in witnessing that oneness or is aligned with this um, lower self that is distracted by the dunya and, in, and is aware of the separation. Mm. And so the word kalb comes uh, from the, also the word taqalb is to, to turn. Mm. So the heart can either turn mm. towards the ruh or turn towards the nafs. Mm. And, and this word aql, which is interesting because it's the one word that, you know, would seem to make the most, have the most connection to psychology, because when we think of psychology, we think of cognition, mm-hmm. and, the, and, you know, we often think of the brain in psychology. But from an Islamic perspective, um, the aql is not necessarily just a cognitive function in the way that we understand a mental process, because the word in the Quran, the the word aql is not used. It's yakiluna, which is an active form of, you could say, intellecting mm. or perceiving. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so it's the heart that actually has this ability to perceive. Mm. And the way that we, you know, like you said, this the rider on the horse is using our faculties, using our, um, our, our ability to perceive mixed with our, our, our intellect to, to learn and um, make choices using our will we can turn our, we can choose to turn our focus or turn our kalb in uh, a direction that is going to elevate us and develop us towards the, our, our higher potential or get sort of stuck in this um, pattern of um, riot, you know, being ridden or, or that, yeah. that animal taking over. MashaAllah. Yeah, so, I mean, you're referencing the kind of the pre-earthly realm, right? In the Quranic narrative that the human being is, is, is a composite in the sense that we're made of clay, we're made of earth. Yeah. But then we're breathed into by Allah, nafas ar-Rahman, the breath of the all-merciful. And that breath is our ruh, is our spirit. So even in, in the sense of breath, which is amazing, which it has it's it's like this intimate connected part of it's it's not you know your breath isn't you but it's not not you also right it has this kind of mysterious connection with yeah. you so each one of us that's our true nature and you're so, constantly it's like this give and take because you're breathing into you yes. and you're exhaling mm-hmm. out of you there's just this constant mm-hmm. connection between the inner and the outer Beautiful. and then there's this in the Quranic narrative there's the plane of alastu birabikum, which all arwah, all spirits, are in the divine presence, like you mentioned, witnessing in perfect peace, in in unity. And, and uh, you know, Rumi talks about it as being like a river, and we're all the reed beds that grow in the river. Like this is where we're from. We are, you know, uh, each an individual reed, but we're part of this great river and come forth from it. But then in the Quranic narrative. All, you know, Allah says to each soul that will ever come into this realm, Alastu bi rabbikum. Am I not your Rabb, your, your Lord, or the one who brings through the stages of maturation? Mm-hmm. And according to the Quran, each human being that was, is, or will be said in that moment, Bala shahidna, yes we bear witness and affirm that and that this was in a sense that the kind of again like this meta historical uh, moment in which you it was signaling that we're going to be taken out of this realm yeah and we're going to essentially be forgetful mm. of that nature of that unity of that union and that this is the new stage and this is essentially the realm of test. So for Muslims, understanding the, the nature of the world, this is it. Yeah. We're taken out of the riverbed of unity and we're, and we're brought onto land. As Rumi says, we're carved. And that's why he says the reed flute. Listen to the reed as it mm-hmm. tells a tale. Because the reed flute is cut from the riverbed and is carved into, but then it's given breath. It's given the ruh. It's given nafas. And so then, an interesting nafas, breath, is so close to nafs. 
nefes, nefes, you know, but it's giving breath and then it starts to cry, right? The reed is a beautiful instrument, but it's also sad. It's melancholy. It sounds like it's weeping. And in that he heard it's his desire to return to the riverbed, to to the divine presence. And so each one of us is essentially born wailing, born in the like, into duality of all of a sudden, into separation and, you know, yearning to return. Um, and so, I mean, it seems like that the whole point of Islam and the whole point of messengers being sent is to help people reclaim that unity, yeah. to reconnect with their true self and to re reaccess it. And it's remembering our real identity and yes. what it means to be as a human being. Because part of that, when we had that witnessing, that when we said Bala Shahidna, we're saying I'm I'm, a, I'm witnessing what I'm witnessing Allah, but that my the mm. the I that's witnessing it is witnessing essentially your um, dependence on Allah, mm. our our slavehood essentially to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and so our nature is to be in in service or in servitude of something that is our we're hardwired to serve. The reality is that we are uh, a slave of our Creator, mm. but when we come into this forgetfulness, we're still hardwired with that mechanism that makes us serve. Mm. But then, without that breath, without that coming back to remembering and cleaning out mm. this um, this veil that's over us, we wind up serving something else. Mm. So we'll serve our our own, you know. Uh, desires or will serve another human being or will serve a political agenda something we're, we're hardwired in this way so i think the the thing that you said like the prophets come to remind us is is cleaning out our heart because that's the thing that turns one way or the other um in order to align that um true identity of who we are so that we can be be the the right type of servants that we're supposed to be mm. serving the 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 creator rather than the creation and i think this breath is almost like i see it as a a, a purification process for cleaning out the heart so that it can um connect with and with that witnessing because when you breathe, where you you breathe, where are you breathing? You know, the the act of breathing is in the chest, in the same place where the heart is. You're sent the center of your being. Mm -hmm. So I think breathing is a really uh, important part of ibadah, mm -hmm. essentially that people don't don't realize. You know, I think we take it for granted as we breathe just enough to be kept alive, rather than breathing f mm. with life, you mm -hmm. know, like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to, you know, get into how, like, putting this in conversation with modern psychology a little bit, but I think it's important to mention that, you know, one of the things, the beautiful things that the Prophet said, he said, you know, that the outward battles against, you know, 
light and dark or good and evil is actually the lesser battles. The greater battle, the greater uh, struggle is within each human being. You know, said to his companion after they were leaving a battlefield, he said, we've just gone from the, the lesser to the greater battlefield. Yeah. And he means the battlefield of the self, the battle that is going on within each of us. And this is the battle essentially between these two poles, this composite nature. In a sense, like you say, we have a, you know, that nature which is pure light and which pulls us higher and yearns for the divine presence and is completely selfless and completely in service of truth and beauty and love and goodness. You know, that is the that is the Jesus. But we also have the dumb ass. We all <laughs> have that part of us which is selfish, egotistical, wants to be praised, wants to receive things at the expense of others. It, who cares about, the, you know. And sometimes we extend it, okay, my family or my tribe or my race or my religion. But ultimately it's it's this othering and the separation and feeling separate ultimately Mm -hmm. and um you know i mean in a sense the whole spiritual path is about disciplining oneself to go towards the light i mean you hear about the proverb this in native american proverb that there's a there's a a wolf of light and a wolf of darkness fighting within each one of us and then they ask well which one wins the one you feed more yeah. If you feed the light, if you do good, if you, then you becomes more it, your nature. It starts to predominate. But if you do, you know that which is other than that, then that starts to predominate as well. So, and I think we should also bring in that when we say the nafs, you know, often in in shorthand we talk about the nafs. Oh, that's my nafs. Mean your kind of lower self. But the reality of the nafs is that it's there's many levels of the nafs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the, the basic three are the nafs al-marabisu, or that soul which commands the evil. That's the kind of lower self, right. which is pulling away. Right? It's commanding, actually. It's like, you know. And then there's the nafs al-lawama, which is, it's, lawama is a different, uh, difficult to translate. It's sometimes called the reproachful uh, self, but I think really to understand it, it's it's that it's kind of like what we call in modern times the conscience. Yeah. It's that which is like calling you it's to like account. Regulating. Yeah, it's like no, that like leave that last piece of pie for <laughs> the other person, or you know, like it's really just checking. It's it's trying to check. It's you know that lower self which is pulling you to complete egotism and selfishness, and. Through righteousness, through submission, through self-discipline, through following the commands and prohibitions, that that voice gets stronger until it starts to predominate, and then and then eventually you get to uh, the nafs al-mutma'ina, which is the soul at peace, or the tranquil soul, the tranquil self, and that is essentially when the battle is won, so to speak. When that lower pull is is gone, or at least it's so weakened that it doesn't have strength to, to you know lead you astray, 
And, um, you know, we find this in the tradition of the Prophet ﷺ. He said that each person has a shaitan, has like a, a, a demon, essentially, mm-hmm. that, a force that is pulling them away from light. And they said, even you, Ya Rasulullah, even you, O Messenger of God? And he said, yes, even me. But mine has submitted. <laughs> mine has become Muslim. Literally. The the mutmainah, the, right? So this is that state where you... you and, you know, alhamdulillah, like we, you meet people that are really at peace. They're really tranquil. I like what uh, Michael Sujik we had on previously said. He said that awliya are those that... The saints are those that have no skin in the game. Right? They're <laughs> not, not trying to, to... lose. They're not trying to jockey for their own position. You know, like yeah. everyone even... Oh, what, what about me? Well, wow. here I am. And, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no personal agenda. Right. It's purely for the greater good. Right. And there are people that attain that. And it's not, it's not easy. In our better moments, we all like to think of ourselves like that. But until you've really done the work to overcome that self, yeah. that lower self, you know, you get, we get weak and you, you get overcome. So, um, I, yeah. I think the question is... You know, the confusion can often be, what is that work? Mm. What is that work that needs to be done to clean the heart mm. in order to achieve that? And I think this is sometimes where this dichotomy comes into play between religion and psychology in that oftentimes people think of religion as things you're supposed to do and things you're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, doing the work of jihad enough is refraining from the things that you're not supposed to do and doing the things you're supposed to do. And that's true to a degree. I mean, that, that is there. But then that is like one level of that work. Because that, that, that is about uh, disciplining oftentimes your actions and the choices that you make that are, I think, more obvious. But then there's so many more subtle levels of the things that we need to be cleaning that comes down to not only intentions, but experiences that we've had. You know, so this is where this process of what we've come to understand as psychology, of like understanding these depths of um, how our how our life experiences have some have somehow perhaps even damaged our psyche and our way of interacting with things, and so. You know, we understand that people have patterns that play out in relationships um, where you'll, you know, oftentimes that's why people go to a therapist sure. is because they have relationship problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's like, well, I have to figure out, you know, what's, what's wrong. Um, and this jihad enough is understanding why do you react the way that you react to this person or this scenario or this situation. And that, that's, a lot, that's a lot more difficult to sort out than just staying away from the haram and, and, and doing the halal. Because that's, that's, like the, that's the basic things. But then on a detailed level of who you are as an individual, mm-hmm. it's understanding your own personal your own personality of how you react to things so that you can uncover where the details are that you need to clean in your heart. And that's about having self-awareness and that process of really reflecting on watching yourself, 
watching how do you react to things, what, what happens in your heart in certain s- circumstances so that you can uncover these layers that you've, you've covered over your, on your heart. Essentially, we get these like black spots on our heart where we've um, veiled or, or there has been a veiling process that's happened between ourselves and Allah and we, we're disconnected from that witnessing. And that can be everything from traumatic events that you did not, that were not a result of your will. They just happened to you. But then that doesn't mean that you don't have work to do with those things. Because they're all things that were created in your life by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for you to work, to, for you to work out, uh, to work through. And so it's understanding this process of working through these things is really what, you know, what I'm calling Islamic psychology but really I think is the psychology of Islam, you know, or, or it is what Islam positions us to do. Um, but we have come to, in the modern world, understand that as a, as a separate thing, as something that is more familiarly termed in the realm of psychology or psychotherapy when um, it needs to be part of that jihad enough process. Mm. Yeah, I heard someone say something that I thought was really useful, that traditional peoples, if you look across the world's wisdom traditions, they believe that, like, human beings need a continued education and a continued discipline. And Oz Elende Button, I think, uh, he he wrote this uh, book called Religion for Atheists. And mm-hmm. uh, he's an interesting philosopher. He's an atheist, but he's very, he, he says, unfortunately, we secularized badly. <laughs> he said religion gives so many good things right. to people. And he's like bemoaning what they lost. What, what's lost. Giving, yeah. It's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. And he's an interesting thing. But one thing he said about that is he was like, Modern people just assume that, yes, okay, children, they need discipline and remedial things and about behavior. But once you're an adult, you're supposed to just be set. You have to, you're supposed to have it all figured out. Right. And if you don't, or if you need guidance, or if you need to talk to someone about your, then there's something actually re- really wrong with you. But traditional people's he, you know, how he put it, he said, they, they said, basically, we're all just barely holding it together. <laughs> and we need like, yeah. we need guidance, we need assistance, right. we need community, we need teachers, we need masters, we need, exactly. you see what I'm saying? And I think, you know, there's this idea in psychology that it's like, oh, there's something really wrong with you, and you're maladjusted, and, or are you just a normal adjusted person, right? Mm. And it's like, you know, we talked about this off mic, but if, in the Islamic perspective, it's like normal is the prophet, Normal are the prophets. Normal are the saints and sages. In the sense that if we talk about normal being healthy, yeah, whole, the ideal. complete, it's ideal normalcy. But the, within the Islamic tradition, and you could say this for every tradition, people are striving to reach that. that their goal is sanctification is sainthood is enlightenment is completion even if only a number of people ever actually reach that stage and it's not just um lowest common denominator like oh i'm i'm able to function and go to work and and you know 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's often what what psychology in the modern world come becomes and psychopathology is whatever is getting in the way of functioning. And functioning is usually determined as sort of being plugged into this capitalist system of, you know, going to work, uh, saying things that don't freak people out that fit into the norm, and then, you know, going and having a and having a comfortable life. Whereas if the goal is development of the soul, then comfort is not necessarily the goal. Because comfort does not necessarily usually means that there's not growth happening at that time. It means you've reached some sort of homeostasis. Right. And if and if and if the goal is to reach this what we're calling this ideal normalcy of this um, prophetic image of what the human being potentially can be, that means you need to be constantly um, shaking things up in order to break through the next level so that you can grow and not necessarily just be removing symptoms because often you know if we look at it differently, those symptoms are information, they're signs of what to look at and what to tune into that you can break through or grow through. So this, like you said, this notion of continuing education, it's tarbiyah. Yes. You know, tarbiyah is, is a, an essential part of Islam. It's, it's um, uh, training your, your nafs, essentially, training yourself in this developmental process of growth, mm-hmm. which from an Islamic, from what we learn in this, in the tra- Islamic tradition, you can't do that alone. Mm-hmm. You need a guide. And this is why we have the Prophet, mm-hmm. this is the blessing of the Prophet in the, in the form of a human being, mm-hmm. is that this is somebody to follow. This is somebody to show us how we're supposed to, uh, what we're supposed to emulate. And and then, in the in the but that's not enough because we still need um, relationships with people that emulate the Prophet right? And so it's about having relationships with teachers, and that's going to be at different levels mm-hmm. because what does that other person do? It reflects to you what you need to work on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like having a mirror that can show you. What's the next thing that you need to work through so that you don't stay comfortable? Yeah, and I think we should, you know, we haven't said it outright, but I mean, I think it's, you know, and and the reason there's, unfortunately, I think a lot of these issues are compounded by the fact that in the modern world, for various reasons, and we had a podcast a few recently with uh, Rory Dixon, who's a specialist on Sufism, particularly contemporary Sufism, called Sufism Contested. And we talked about how Sufism is contested in the modern world. I mean, it's contested within Islam and it's contested within outside of Islam, within the West. And it, mm. there's a lot of different understandings of it and definitions of it. And because of kind of the, basically I you know, people can go check out that podcast if they want to hear more in depth. But the short story of it is because of kind of more modern reformist movements that reject Sufism as an integral part of Islam. A lot of 
there's a lot of baggage or that word is very weighted for a lot of people, a lot of yeah. Muslims. And a lot of people within Islam or outside of Islam associate Sufism, when they think of it, they think, oh, what, like poetry or whirling or dance, dance yeah. or some kind of chanting. But but the reality, what I'm getting at is the reality of Sufism always to Sawuf was primarily a science. Yes. And how it was understood by Muslims, I mean, there was literally with, you know, until the last 200 years, there was not a single Muslim that would have understood if you said Sufism isn't an integral part of Islam. Yeah. There were debates about certain practices, right? This dance or this, you know, but there was no one saying, oh, this is all. And the essence of, of Sufism always was uh, really understanding the self, understanding the the tarbiyah, the way to transform the self, you know. If the sharia is dealing with the outward acts and the limbs and how to behave outwardly, uh, and, you know, aqeedah or kalam is dealing with how to properly understand uh, iman and the nature of existence and you know, f- philosophy and theology, essentially. Uh, you know, ihsan uh, or beauty and spiritual excellence is really the domain of tasawwuf, Sufism. And so, in a sense, I mean, to oversimplify, we could really say that Sufism is Islamic psychology, largely, at its heart. Because it is the science of understanding how to go from uh, an ego, you know, dominated, selfish person and to progress through the stages to enlightenment, to true selfless, to true awakening, uh, to true selflessness and awakening and uh, true prophetic character and realization inwardly so i'm curious about what you might have to say about that and also um yeah i mean is that difficult in our time just because i mean if you agree with me but then also if you think it's difficult to to kind of even discuss this because of the way that a lot of muslims uh, you know have misconceptions about sufism yeah. now yeah, I think I think it's it's important to understand what we what we talk about when we say Sufism because essentially there's tasawwuf, like you said, the science of the soul really is what what the knowledge that's there, and then there's tariqa, which is what people have come to understand. You know, there's lineages of people who follow a sheikh, mm-hmm. and and there's within that when you have anything that that becomes about subsections right Mm -hmm. so just as with islam you can say um people say well when you try to define islam you talk about islam people say well which islam and what they mean by that is there's all these different interpretations of what this means and what that means Mm -hmm. and that's essentially about what people have done with islam and how they have practiced it and how they have um, compartmentalized it and what it becomes and then it becomes back into these factions of of almost like tribalism. Mm -hmm. And that's about what people do with the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because really, Islam is from Allah. And it's the religion that the Prophet brought. 
and there's one Islam. Mm-hmm. There's different ways of people's understanding and what they have done with it. Mm-hmm. So the same goes for tasawwuf. Tasawwuf is a, a body of knowledge within Islam. And then there's like these, all of these different tariqah, which some stay true to that knowledge, and there has been deviations. And people focus on those deviations for, the, for defining it. So I think it's important to, to separate that out. So then when we're talking about tasawwuf, as in uh, um, this branch of knowledge of a, a, an in-depth study of the soul and, and what that means for tarbiyah, really, for the development of the soul, then um, it's recognizing, like you said, can we consider Islamic psychology essentially tasawwuf? In some ways, yes. I would say, in theory, yes. Because the, like, the knowledge of what we have come to understand, what we learn from the Islamic tradition, from the Quran and the Sunnah, of what the soul is, how that is understood in relation to Allah and where we're going in this trajectory of life, that knowledge exists and has been really um, beautifully explained and hashed out by a lot of scholars. And that, and that is definitely within the realm of the science of tasawwuf. But then when we talk about Islamic psychology, for me, part of that is theory, understanding theory. And from, the, from that as, aspect, I think that you could say perhaps that's all there in tasawwuf. Mm-hmm. But then when we're talking about applied, applying that mm-hmm. in something like psychotherapy or applied psychology where it's um, operationalizing or maybe just even interpreting those frameworks of how we understand human development into practice of how you walk somebody through development, I think there's, there's modern developments of how we um, how we develop the practical part of that that makes sense to human beings today. Mm-hmm. Um, that that we, can, we can integrate a lot of modern psychology in that process. Mm-hmm. Because, and the reason why we need to do that is because traditionally, long time ago, when you had, when, when this was more integrated into Islamic societies, you would go to a sheikh and a sheikh would... Um, have an understanding of that process of tarbiyah and would um, there's an avenue to access people like this to help you navigate these things but now because of the, all of the globalization and people live in communities that are separate and the fact that we've lost a lot of these wise ones mm-hmm. that can really guide us in these ways we are at a point where people don't have access to those, those guides. But that doesn't take away the fact that we still, that relationship of having somebody mirror to you what you need to see about yourself is still an essential part of how we grow and develop. Mm. And so now we're at a point where we need to come up with um, solutions to um, getting people to be able to access this type of guidance in a practical and realistic and sustainable way, which means... I think learning how to apply some of these concepts of tarbiyah and and like tasawwuf and understanding the soul in ways that are are, um, practical applications for something that like 
people can learn to do. People can learn to be in these positions of guidance. It doesn't mean they're going to be at the level of a of a sheikh who has who has traversed these paths of the soul to these deep levels. Um, but it's it's understanding that there's a a different scope of of psychology that can help people get to like a, a point of equilibrium. So it's not just removing symptoms and plugging back into that same capitalist system of being comfortable. Uh, and that's what makes it Islamic is understanding those symptoms as potentials for growth and, 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 and having the soul be a part of that process. Mm. But it's about, you know, reformatting it into something that makes sense for the, the times that we're living in now. Yeah, and for the psych, the psychology of the people, like you know, the mm-hmm. Western people are very different. I mean, we live in a very different age, and I think, you know, I mean, I think anyone who's a Westerner, who's, <coughs> anyone who's a Westerner who's thinking about, you know, an Eastern tradition in the West, you have to. It's not just about taking it wholesale and putting it here. You have to really think about how is this going to manifest for the people. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that kind of brings me, I'd love to ask you, you know, about the, you know, just some of your thoughts on, on this, what you're saying, as far as the, you know, for modern people. And, you know, one thing it brought up when, when you mentioned this is I thought a lot about um, the Buddhist community. I have many friends in the Buddhist community, Buddhist teachers, and in, in many ways, they, they're very much ahead in the sense of an Eastern tradition that comes West and many of the people that have studied Buddhism or studied with the great traditional masters went on to get degrees in psychology. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the, the biggest, most prominent Buddhist teachers in America, in the West, an overwhelming majority or, or, or number of them are trained in Western psychology as mm-hmm. well, have degrees and, 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 you know, so, um, I think that's fascinating, and I think they're able to integrate and bring some of the depth and profundity of their tradition into the modern world in ways that speak to people. Um, and so, I'm just curious uh, what you think about that vis-a-vis, you know, Islamic psychology to so you know, in conversation with modern uh, psychology or psychotherapy, um, and some ways that 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 knowledge, that tradition can serve and be beneficial. Yeah. I think, um, I hope that there, I think we're moving into this time with this, there's a lot of excitement and focus on the development of Islamic psychology. Um, And primarily I think that starts with the Muslim community, but my hope and my my real passion is to um, have these developments turn into something that can be utilized and and beneficial for non-Muslims. So where people start to look to the Islamic tradition for this knowledge of the soul, essentially, which is applicable for human beings in that same struggle. How we make sense of it in terms of our theological orientation, um, you know, that gets into other details. But there's plenty of people who are benefiting from Buddhist concepts that are not Buddhist and, yeah. and aren't, don't want to be Buddhist. Mm-hmm. They, but they really appreciate 
um, the way that it's been presented. So like mindfulness is an example that is, you know, you hear it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some fundamental things about Buddhism that make it, um, that people tend to be perhaps more comfortable with it or, or they, they see it as being more approachable because there's this understanding that there's not a theistic mm-hmm. um, relationship. And so I think for a lot of people in the West, there's this fear mm-hmm. of, of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that comes from because of what people have seen people do in the name of God. Mm-hmm. And so that, um, that, that gets removed from the equation. Now, I think there's a whole other podcast or conversation of, of how, how real, what the reality is of whether Buddhist philosophy has that mm-hmm. element in it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that it's talked about, the language, the experience of Buddhism very much leaves more room for people in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that Islam is seen as, you know, even when you just say the word Islam, there's so much connotations that we now collect in the collective consciousness have people attached to that and it becomes this you know it's 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 religion and it means Mm -hmm. this one thing over here and so it's unfortunate because i think that keeps people from accessing the same potential and benefit Mm -hmm. but i think there's there's some easy crossovers like for instance i've i've been um talking a lot and, and doing workshops on um, sort of reinterpreting mindfulness and I call it heartfulness. Um, just because that shift in language um, highlights the shift in what our focus is from an Islamic paradigm. We're not, you know, the mind, the conception of the mind is different. And so we're not only just centering ourselves and clearing thoughts, but it's really bringing, bringing awareness into this heart center. And then um, I think there's a lot that can be offered from this Islamic uh, paradigm that, that people can appreciate and utilize in psychology, um, regardless of whether they're Muslim or not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I love that idea of heartfulness. And I think, you know, we live in a time in which uh, people are increasingly depressed, feeling alone. Ironically, we're all connected, but we're more isolated than ever. Um, And, you know, just conversations around wellness, self-care, um, you know, um, it's there's less stigma now, I think, for people to, like, speak to a therapist or a counselor, you know. Um, and people are starting to really understand that, like, you know, the human being needs to be cared for. Like, you have to take hmm. care of yourself, in a yeah. sense. And you have to... Um, you have to, in the same way that you would care for anything else you know you care for your car you have to like you know maintenance maintain it exactly there has to be a maintenance of the soul Mm -hmm. and you're not just like all right i'm an adult i should be fine i can go 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 or whatever not really um 
And I agree with you totally that the Buddhists have done a great job. Like, you know, people can come to a meditation, come to mindfulness, and it's not about necessarily your theological commitments or what have you. It's really just about this works. Yeah. It's an <laughs> this, accessible tool. This helps you be, and, and also the, you know, the, you know, yoga tradition as well. Similarly, like, you know, yoga is so popular because it works. You don't need to necessarily like ascribe to all the tenets of Hinduism necessarily right. to, to like get benefit from this. Right. And I think there's so many like medicinal aspects of our tradition that, you know, we haven't necessarily felt free to like, well, let's, let's heal, let's heal people. And, you know, like you say, people, if people are caught up on the word Islam, then let's not even use it. If people are caught up on the word Sufism, let's not even use it. Like it's medicine. Who cares what bottle it's in? Yeah. If it works, that's what's important. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I think hopefully we can get over the terms too and we can be more people of a little bit of depth and be like okay but i'm not just gonna like say oh you said islam i'm out or oh you said sufism i'm out but it's like what are you actually saying Mm -hmm. what is what are you getting at here what what are you you know how can i understand be beyond the 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 box categories yeah and and understand that and i think you know um these things are so important because they really get down to the heart or the soul of the human condition. Which is which is why I like psychology. For my relationship to psychology has always been that it's this accepted field mm-hmm. that to me is the closest thing to um, uh, what religion deals with. Yeah. You know, develop development and understanding the self and the soul. And so... This is this is actually why I went into psychology from the very beginning is that really I was interested in spirituality and the development of the soul. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, well how how can I have a career in that? Mm-hmm. And psychology was the only thing that's close closest related. It's something that you, you can talk about these things in the open and not have not have to be affiliated with some theological perspective or um be thought of as, you know, uh, outside of the realm of what's acceptable. And so that's why I like using this language and format and framework for psychology because I think it's something that everybody needs. Everybody has the experience of having a psych- having psychology or having, you know, like the dynamics of the human being and then problems that get in the way in that human experience and trying to sort them out. That's something that whether you're Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, you're going to have that experience. And so I think I'm, I'm hoping that we can get to more conversations about, um, you know, just sort of globally of like uh, healing and health and development from the perspective of human beings as the identity of a soul um, that where where we don't get so stuck on the the theology. To me, the theology, I I became Muslim through psychology. Mm -hmm. It was because I was looking for this um, science of the soul, Mm -hmm. and this just made perfect sense to me. It all lined up to the point where, like, not only is this the psychology that I was looking for, this is the whole framework. And so my understanding of the religion 
is more about a framework for advancing the, develop, the psychological development than it is because I think that that's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean the idea that if somebody studies legal theory or if they study kalam, if they study like, you know, theology or any other number of things, that they're necessarily going to, that that somehow by default makes them able to like counsel you on your individual life and spiritual growth Mm. is hilarious. (laughs) Like we would never go to a lawyer and be like, you're a lawyer, right? You studied law for years and years. So can you please tell me how I can get along better with my spouse? Well, let me go to the law books. Like, it's absurd. Yeah. Um, but yet, people that study Islamic law, that you know, scholars of the sacred law, people assume, oh, well, you're a scholar, or you can recite Quran, or you, you know what I mean? Like, you must. And, like, those are obviously important fields. But the, the point is, is, like, unfortunately, we have this idea of, like, catch-all, right? Oh, the imam or the sheikh, they, they can do everything, right? And the reality is, and I know because a lot of my friends are the kind of like younger generation of scholars, right? And that many of them have amazing training, seven years, 10 years in, in Al-Azhar and, you know, Syria and Hadramaut or all over the place. And they have specializations and they have a lot of knowledge. But the idea that necessarily that's going to translate to uh, this science. Yeah. And, and that's why I really believe, like, I, I, I believe to so, I mean, we, ha- we have to call a spade a spade. Like, this is the science of the self, you know, and understanding the soul. And I think, unfortunately, in mainstream Islam, it's been taken out of Islam. And so if you take the science of the soul and understanding the self and the heart and and its its diseases and its cures and its pitfalls and its tarbiyah and all this stuff, and you just take that out, well, of course you're going to have complete dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And of course you're going to have sickness. And of course you're going to have instability and imbalance. I mean, that's, you took out the thing that Cures all that. Yeah, it's back to that fragmentation. The very beginning of this conversation, we talked about the human experience is we're focusing on these parts. And, you know, people's relationship to the knowledge which is supposed to be guiding you towards this integration of wholeness of understanding, mm-hmm. it be- that also becomes then separated out. And, and people's relationship to the knowledge becomes um, a an intellectual exercise and really the the intellectual aspect is is one avenue of knowledge you know the knowledge of the the experiential knowledge is is um i would say more important but not to discredit the intellectual knowledge because you need that in order to guide that experiential experiential knowledge but if you cannot have you cannot divorce the experiential aspect from it otherwise you wind up with a shell of what was meant to be there from the beginning and so when we talk about tasawwuf like the real shayukh of tasawwuf which are unfortunately very few left Mm. did have 
both of those sides of the coin. Yes. They had the knowledge of the law, the letter of the law, and they had the deep experiential knowledge to the point, to the degree that I've seen Shayukh, who can tell you every um, hadith uh, transmission and, and all of the you know, book knowledge, and yet they could guide an individual based on what that individual needs um, and knowing what, what is in the nature of their heart and soul to tell them the information that they need to advance one level on their journey. Yeah. And that is the skill of a, of a counselor, mm. of, a, of a psychologist. Right. You know, understanding the psychology of the human being and how do we, how do we um, deliver and interpret this, this um, information, this, this maybe even religious knowledge in a way that's going to make sense and be able to be utilized as medicine for what this person needs to advance on their path of becoming more whole. You know, it's like applying that Islamic knowledge as medicine. And this is, um, this is what we need to somehow try to preserve, even if it means, like you're saying, all working together as a team where we have people who have different special, specialists. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe it's not realistic to have these people that are all that where it's all in one person, you know, maybe that time is passing. Mm. And then we need like interdisciplinary treatment teams to understand mm. all of this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you've been generous with your time, so we should uh, probably come to a close. But in closing, I'd love to hear, you know, what you're hopeful for, like, in, you know, moving forward, you know, kind of best case scenario, what psychology and Islam and Islamic psychology, you know, what do you think this this conversation or this this merging or this discussion can can be, or what are some hopeful things that can come out of this for, for people in the twenty first century? I think first first of all, as a Muslim community, um, putting more intention efforts and resources behind like canonizing this knowledge and understanding um, how that Islamic knowledge needs to be um, understood in, in application. You know, we need to come together and, and I think embrace this development of Islamic psychology where scholars who know, who know the knowledge work together with people who are, um, you know, know psychology mm-hmm. and develop this way of, of understanding how our r- religious path can actually be applicable to, for healing, and for healing on an individual level and as a, uh, as a community. But then, once we've made some headway, which I think we already are, I, I think it would be nice to have the a larger community behind it more, and be more aware of it and support it, because I think it stands to benefit everyone. Then, my hope is that we are able to, you know, I, the reason I say starting with the community is I think it's important to know where you're grounded in, you know, that this is, for, this is Islam. It's not, we're not deviating from Islam. It's, it's Islam. But then once that foundation is set um, and we know what is Islamic psychology, then it's about offering to the world what, what can be benefit benefit from in terms of of healing and understanding 
this knowledge of the soul that comes from our, our tradition and being able to offer it to the world in ways where, you know, where there's more books written about um, this, this science of the soul and how it, how, how it can apply to, to just helping people and, and, and that it doesn't necessarily have to be completely seeped in theology. There's parts of it that are useful for everybody. Um, and then if people want to connect with your work, uh, where can they find you? And I know you have like that paper, which I believe was your dissertation, right? Is that it's available part of online? my dissertation? Yes, yeah, so I have. Yeah, it's available online. It's uh, toward a framework for Islamic psychology and psychotherapy and Islamic model of the soul. Okay. So it can be found on, uh, you can Google it. Okay. I'll put a link, inshallah, in the... Yeah, and then I have another another article coming out that's the second part of that study, which is taking that f- framework and putting it into practice. So looking at what does that model of the soul look like in terms of practical applications for helping people develop. And then um, a lot of that work is the foundation of work we're doing in the uh, International Association of Islamic Psychology. And that website is islamicpsychology.org. Okay. Bismillah. Alhamdulillah. Thank you, bro. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure.